The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Bambi, Stephanie, Stephanie Bambi. All right. Good Lord, look who it is. It's just an introduction. It's probably a very bad idea. You brought me a little friend. Yeah, and I'm off. Oh, Bill, wait. Punters love a new girl. Can't help that. Yeah, but nothing can replace experience. Ooh. Older girls always say that. I'm not old. No, I just mean for an escort. You know, the body changes. Young girls come up on the inside. Bambi, sweetheart, it's the only job where the less you've worked, the more you can charge. Nearly half of which she takes, by the way. Are you just going to undermine me, Belle? No, I'm just being honest. You know, Bambi, you need work, but my books could really use a nice British girl. That used to be Belle. She was always available, all about the job, 100% escort. Not all about the job. It's just Eastern Europeans and nasty porn stars these days. I did a bit of porn. Funny, they all look down on you lot, you know. I'm a performer, not a prostitute, and you're all, I'm an escort, I'd never do porn. Well, you know, in my time, I've done things you couldn't even imagine. The work will always be there. A city without whores is like a house without bathrooms. Have a think about it. Actually, I reckon I've made my decision. I want to be independent, like Belle. Well, if you ever change your mind, you too, Belle. The door's always open, as long as your legs are. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, July 17th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and 519-661-3600 is a number to call if you want to join in on the conversation or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Robert Vaughn away for his usual annual sabbatical at this time of year, and I don't think we'll see him again till early August or so. And so I hope he has a great holiday. I know he's busy doing some other things as well, and we'll welcome him back when he comes back in a few weeks. Today, though, our topic heading is, of course... Bill C-36, which is all about the Making Prostitution Illegal Act. It's not really its name. But today I'd like to set the stage for what will clearly require more than one broadcast to adequately deal with this topic objectively or fairly. I'm almost a bit embarrassed to say that we haven't broached any specific topics on sexuality in a general way or of the laws concerning sexuality. It's been like three years. The last time we talked about this was uh, June 9th um, in 2011 and uh, again way back in 2010 and then not since 2008. So three shows if you want to check them out, shows number 54, 172 and 203 online all dealing with aspects of this issue that I will not cover today because we discussed a number of issues dealing with the whole issue of prostitution sales, you know, sex sales, whatever you want to call it. But Bill C-36, the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, says Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada Peter McKay in his June 13th National Post editorial, 
is, quote, a made-in-Canada solution to prostitution, end quote. Now, right from the start, and perhaps through some hidden intention, he cites the glaringly unworkable goal of ending the demand for services of the so-called oldest profession on planet Earth. Bill C-36 says McKay will crack down on the pimps and johns who fuel the demand for prostitution. He calls the bill a made-in-Canada solution because it, quote, reflects the values of Canadians, end quote. We'll have to ask if that were true, then there wouldn't be any debate or controversy about the issue. And it begs a bigger question. Whose values were being reflected when the Supreme Court struck down Canada's prostitution laws in the first place? Whose values were those? Hmm. What he really means is that it reflects the numbers that he wants to see, not the values of Canadian polling results, and some skewed results at that, as we'll find out later. In the June 3rd London Free Press article headlined, Feds to Table Prostitution Bill, it was reported that, quote, fully 56% of respondents said that buying sex should be criminal, while 66% said selling it shouldn't be. Well, yeah, that adds up to 122%, but all that means is that some people, at least 22% of the respondents, support both statements, that buying sex should be, be illegal, but that selling it should not be. It also adds up to 122% because they're compa- not comparing, or they're comparing apples and oranges, rather, and forgetting the grapefruits and the watermelons. What's not reported is the numbers on how many people think that both buying and selling of sex should be legal, what has been reported is kind of a, you know, it's like a, like a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose, flipping the fake coin kind of pro- pro- you know, presentation made to make the conservative legislation look like it has the support of a majority. But the relevant and real and truthful opposite to each side of the apples to apples and oranges to oranges coin is this. If 56% believe buying sex should, should be criminal, then 44% think it should be legal. If 66% think that selling sex should not be criminal, then only 34% think it should be criminal. Clearly, even by these skewed stats, the majority opposes criminalization. Yet that's not the direction that the government is going in. Of course, looking at the issue this way is, to me, a a complete metaphysical and epistemological and just plain logical contradiction of... It's so so gross of a proportion that it astounds me that presumably rational human beings can even continue to entertain such a discussion, let alone legislation, on so ludicrous a proposition. I mean, are you serious? Selling something is okay, but buying it is not? I mean, that's mental, or maybe that's a lack of mental. Yet that's the premise that's shared by so many in front of these committee hearings, including London's own Megan Walker, who runs uh, the city's women's shelter here in the city, and of course Canadian Minister of Justice Peter McKay himself. Continues McKay in his editorial, research shows that those involved in this activity are often in vulnerable situations and may in case become the victims of violence and manipulation at the hands of those who exploit them. This is why we do not seek to criminalize them. Instead, we are investing, here it goes, $20 million into federal and provincial programs, as well as grassroots organizations to assist prostitutes exiting the sex trade. So, that's end quote, so his legal remedy 
is very clear and simple. One, make buying sex illegal by cracking down on those who fuel the demand for prostitution. And two, keep the selling of sex legal while paying governments and organizations $20 million to convince prostitutes not to have sex and to get out of the trade. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that seems to be a far cry from committing to doing anything to protect those remaining in the trade. The government is saying, in effect, that we'll protect prostitutes, but only if they quit being prostitutes. A more reasonable explanation, of course, uh, that McKay does, quote, not seek to criminalize prostitutes is political. He would lose the support of people and groups like Megan Walkers, whose own local women's shelter may well be among those of the grassroots organizations that will get to split the $20 million political payoff down the road. No, I don't think that Canada's Bill C-36 is certainly not about justice, nor will it eliminate prostitution in Canada. But most importantly, and I say most importantly because this is the supposed stated intention and goal of the legislators themselves, it will not better protect vulnerable people in our communities. There are other ways to go about doing this, and I found one very interesting that has that was started quite a while ago, and I'm going to talk about that after our first break that we're going to take just a little earlier here than normal because I want to get into that point of view from a former prostitute who tells why she was in the business, why it was hard to get out of the business, and why she formed a group whose goal it was, and this is in the United States, to do exactly what Peter McKay says his goal is with this legislation. But first we'll listen to this and we'll pick up on the other side. I was married for two years before my wife told me she was a prostitute. And then, just when I'm finally starting to be okay with it, she gave me a bill for $85,000. I can let you know what I do, but I'm not going to be your mentor. Mentor. <laughs> okay, sorry, let me know what you do. Just so you know, the most important thing, safety, and that is why... Look at this email. See, I'd never go near this one. Hey, baby, and he's misspelled baby. You're a snob! Yeah, I am a snob. The whole tone of it's wrong. Yeah, it, it comes with experience. What's that? Oh, it's just some bloke who wants to go on a date with me. I would do it. No, not, not like that. Proper real-life date. You should go. No, bad idea. Good idea. Anyway, uh, so I was saying, the biggest security stuff happens before the appointment. You should call that bloke back, you know. No, I don't date like civilian. It's just a drink. My days, if I didn't know, I would say you were well in need of getting laid. I can't go on a real date. Like a normal person, I'm a prostitute. That's what I am. And that's how a lot of prostitutes view themselves. In fact, you might be surprised at where I found this article. This is from actually 
1989 old issue of nothing. You wouldn't, you won't expect this. Hustler magazine, October 1989, in which interviewer Adam Gelt interviews Rene LeBlanc, who formed a group in the United States called Prostitutes Anonymous. And in his introduction to the interview, he writes, and I quote here, it is a typical Hollywood night. One more hooker has been beaten and tossed out on her ass. Don't come back till you got that money, admonishes her man. It's not a new scene, but this time she's had too much. She rubs two dimes together, goes to a payphone, and dials. Quote, you have reached Prostitutes Anonymous, answers a recorded voice. This is a computerized answering service to assure your privacy and protection. Please bear with the fact that we cannot have direct contact at this time. Prostitutes Anonymous is a group of men and women, homosexual, bisexual, and heterosexual, who are either currently in or have left some area of the sex industry. We are designed to help people get get either out of the industry or stay out of the industry. At the tone, the embattled hooker leaves her name and number. She has made contact with Rene LeBlanc. An, ex, an ex-hooker who formerly used a computer to keep track of her 3,000 clients. LeBlanc is the founder of Prostitutes Anonymous. Prostitutes Anonymous has meetings springing up in 10 different states and in several areas of California. End quote. Now, because the interview itself is too long to read in its entirety, I wanted to focus in on its essentials, realities that we rarely, if ever, hear about, especially when those with a stake in the current legislation debate are all bringing their own political and ideological baggage into the fray and throwing it on the prostitutes, as far as I'm concerned. In the interview, Prostitutes Anonymous founder Rene LeBlanc describes herself thusly, and I quote, I worked in the sex industry for six years. I considered myself a professional. I had an escort service, a massage parlor, phone sex service, all at the same time with about 10 people working for me. I had to actually meet a certain quota of money coming in, or I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was making more than $2,000 a day, and I wanted to commit suicide. Something was wrong, but I did not know what." End quote. What finally got her out of the business, we learn, was being busted by the police for pimping and pandering in 1985. So instead of being in the prostitution business, get this, she turned to transporting and selling drugs during her probation period for selling sex. Quote, as part of my probation, I had to go to trade school. I staggered into this school after a three-day coke run, wired to the hilt, and two guys were sitting there talking about the Narcotics Anonymous program, which I had never heard of. So long story short, she got into Narcotics Anonymous, <clears throat> which was effective in helping her get away from the drugs and from the drug trade. At which point, interviewer Adam Gelt asks, if Narcotics Anonymous was working so well, why did you start Prostitutes Anonymous? Now here's something you don't hear in this debate about prostitution and those who want to get out of the trade. And here's what LeBlanc said to him. Quote, Prostitution was much deeper and stronger than the drugs. With prostitution, the sicker and more addicted I was, the more money I made. Every other addiction, you lose money. You lose the house. You don't buy a house. It's an addiction to the lifestyle. It is said that if you're in it for longer than a year, you can't go back, end quote. 
We learn later in the interview that the reason that LeBlanc could not go anywhere to deal with her prostitution issue was because at that time there were no groups formed for this other than Children of the Night, which was exclusively for teenagers. And psychiatrists weren't an answer for her either, she explains. Quote, I would go to see a psychiatrist and turn a trick to pay for the shrink. And most of the women I worked with in prostitution did not drink or use drugs. They're not going to have access to Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. People on TV were promoting prostitution as glamorous. Well, I'm having so much fun that I'm throwing up every time I turn a trick. I believed there was something wrong with me for not enjoying it. Still, I could not escape the responsibility for saving all of the hookers in the world. I could commit to being this lone voice in the wind that says, it's okay to quit if you want to. Some hookers are happy and having a wonderful time. They're not going to call me. And pay attention to that, because that's the clear issue here. That, that Not everyone's in the same boat here, and no one person in the industry speaks for all of them. They're all in different situations. Are there warning signs that a person should get out of the sex biz, replied, uh, uh, and replied LeBlanc? Yes, suicidal tendencies, thinking that they're going crazy, not understanding why they're the only ones not having fun, a feeling of being trapped, are there common background traits among your fellowship, she was asked. And this is interesting. Every female and male member of our group has been sexually abused as a child. Half of them have been physically abused also. Always the women have been raped more than once. You become raped because you said no. When you're a prostitute, you don't say no, ever. You say, hey, honey, money right here. The only thing they can do to you is to rip you off. Then here's an interesting issue. She gets asked, do you see prostitutes as victims? And her answer is this. I see prostitutes as victims who have decided to become the victimizer. My first year, I was having a ball. I was very angry with men because of my father and because of the rape. I enjoyed degrading the tricks. I enjoyed wreaking havoc. I loved taking their money, doing terrible things to them, and then having them say, thank you. I was getting more into the B&D there for a while because I was really working out my hostilities. And then finally she gets asked, what old ideas need to be altered to break out of prostitution? And then she threw a couple of old sayings, once a whore, always a whore, or screw them before they try to screw me, she says. She says, I was in the, I was in the submissive, weak, vulnerable, abused position when I was young. For me, the way out of that was to become the abuser. Isn't that a common trait, not just in this industry, but among a lot of abused people? One of my biggest fears was that in coming out of my dominant position of being a prostitute, I would become the victim again. Telling me to give up prostitution is telling me to give up my power. That is really the source of my resistance to going straight. And I think that prostitution is the hardest addiction to break. Addiction is anything that ends in jails, institutions, and death. Prostitution can fit that bill. There's another way of living where no one is the victim, end quote. And that, believe it or not, was in an interview from an October 1979 Canadian edition of Hustler magazine, a publication considered to be a major player at the center of the sex industry in North America. I've always found if you want to get the most critical uh, appraisals of what goes on in the sex industry, you'll find it 
in the sex industry themselves. They, they are not afraid to talk about these issues, especially in the more open end of the sex industry, which is the pornography industry. And that's something we'll be getting into in the second half of the show a little more. McKay's bill is sure to be struck down, says John Iveson in his commentary in the National Post this past June 5th. And he writes, and I quote, Last December, the Supreme Court struck down the existing law on prostitution on the basis that it diminished the security of sex workers in violation of Section 7 of the Charter of Rights. There have been a number of studies conducted before and since the Supreme Court decision on the impact of shifting the guilt burden from sellers to purchasers, including one conducted in Vancouver and released this week. None suggested the well-being of sex workers is enhanced, the key ingredient of any constitutional laws. Interesting, he uses the word the guilt burden as though there's automatically some sort of guilt attached to buying and selling sex. And that's part of the baggage that they bring to the debate. And he writes, when Johns are targeted, prostitutes continue to take steps to avoid police detection. They are unable to screen clients and remain at risk of violence, abuse, and HIV. Prohibition of the purchase of sex is as likely to violate sex workers' rights of security in the eyes of the Supreme Court as is prohibition of the selling of sex. The bill is likely to make life even more unsafe for many prostitutes. If they can't advertise their services to persuade the Johns to come to them, many more are likely to take to the streets in search of business. The government says it will spend $20 million to assist sex workers to leave the industry. But does Mr. McKay seriously think this is going to reduce the number of women selling sex or improve the lot of those who remain? None of this bodes well for the long-term survival of this legislation. The cynicism that marked its introduction has mirrored the farce of the public consultation process. This is interesting. As La Presse revealed Wednesday, a $175,000 survey on public attitudes towards prostitution was commissioned by the government. But Mr. McKay was warned in a memo by justice officials in January that the results may contradict government policy. The report was promptly shelved, and the results won't be published until the new bill has been sent to committee. Instead, the government published an online consultation, and that was probably the results of that uh, poll that we heard, that we just discussed, with its preferred result, a majority suggesting the purchase of sexual services should be an offense. As it is, the reputation of the office of the Attorney General has been tarnished. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of public money have been wasted on surveys that reveal uh, inconvenient truths, and a stopgap law that will need to be rewritten has been imposed. The the decision should have been based on the evidence. Instead, it smacks of the Queen of Hearts logic. Sentence first, verdict afterwards, end quote. And I couldn't agree more. But beyond all of this talk about the impracticality of the bill and its intentions, what disturbs me most is the glaring intellectual contradiction and moral injustice at the center of this that's completely accepted as if it were the rational or even a plausible thing to do. You can't make one half of the same transaction legal and the other half of the same transaction illegal. Buying and selling 
are part of the same single action, referred to as a transaction, a trade, which by definition cannot and does not exist except under conditions of consent by both parties in the transaction. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a trade. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a transaction. It would be, we'd have another word for it. Both parties in the transaction are equally taking part in the same act. It is both illogical and immoral to suggest that one side of a transaction, and worse, the one initiating the transaction, is moral, while the other side of the same transaction is not moral, or worse, a criminal. Like, isn't that self-evident? Isn't that obvious to everybody that, that, you know, that does not compute Will Robinson. You can't have it that way, and yet that's the way the whole thing's being discussed, and everybody goes, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. Yuck, yuck. I'm going, oh, my God, get me out of this country. But contradiction and misuse of the English language appear to be the key components of the argument on the side of those who want to criminalize everything. In his January 13th London Free Press commentary, Warren Kinsella Kinsella, uh, ridiculously asserts, as the headline states, quote, prostitution isn't sex, it's really bought rape. So say the experts, he writes. So say former prostitutes themselves. It isn't sex, it's a business. It's coerced submission. It is bought rape, end quote. Well, if it is rape, then it's a criminal act of violence initiated by the attacker. It can't be prostitution if it is rape. These two words mean something different from each other and always have. Those two things are opposite in meaning and in intent. If you want to say rape, use the word rape. If you want to say prostitution, use that word. But don't make them mean the same thing because they don't or we wouldn't have different words because they are different concepts. This is an obvious attempt to eliminate the very concept of consensual commercial acts of sex. And yes, it is sex. I don't. <laughs> that's the service that the customer, he who pays the piper, is paying for. And yes, it is a business. The person offering the service is earning an income. They're not doing it for their personal pleasure. And when you're in business, you don't have to love your customer or even have a personal relationship with him or her. That's the whole point and the advantage of being in a business. These are not mutually exclusive conditions or realities. But in the minds of those who would criminalize any concepts of sex for money, it's a doctrine of deeply held ideology, not based on any of the concerns that they promote as their motivation for criminalizing prostitution. To ignore all this is to purposely avoid solving the real problems within the sex trade, I think. From child prostitution to trafficking to forced slavery, which we've talked about a lot on this show and which are being talked about, but which any approach that requires evading distinctions and destroying concepts, it's doomed to failure because it'll fail the reality test. It won't work. These words apply to real things in the real world. To simply assert that any and all acts of sex for money are non-consensual and thus constitute rape is to assert that no such consensual transaction is even possible, which is, I mean, that's sheer nonsense on the face of it. It also asserts, and this is something that no one wants to talk about, but it's a whole subject for another show, that women are not equal to men since they're not capable of consent, apparently, under such circumstances. It denies them their freedom of choice and ownership of their own bodies. And you just can't go there. As pointed out by John Ivison, Bill C-36 will also make it illegal to advertise escort services, etc., online or elsewhere. How ironic 
that had it not been for the existence of exactly such advertising, underage girls right here in London may have wound up as prostitutes themselves. Quote, sex ads land mom in jail, end quote, reads the April 9th headline in the Free Press, where writers Randy Richmond and Jane Sims report that, quote, a London welfare mom was jailed for luring girls into the sex trade via the Internet. <laughs> now, just how dumb do you have to be to post this kind of ad to Kijiji online? Quote, are you female? Are you between the ages of 14 to 18? Have no experience with mobile spa? We want to train you now. Need someone to start as soon as possible. Please email if interested. Looking to feel, fill two positions, end quote. Katrina Finnamore, 24, pleaded guilty to two counts of luring after using an online ad to try and get inexperienced teenage girls for her sexual massage business. She had no previous record of offenses of any kind. Anxious to make fast money, she advertised on Kijiji, hoping to entice young girls to sign up, end quote. Now, I wonder how Finnamore might have proceeded with her unsuccessful plan had Bill C-36 already taken effect. Personally, I've always believed that the more open we are about all of our activities, including commercial sexual activities, it's easier to effectively police those activities uh, you know, than it is to cross the line in the criminal behavior and put them all criminal. And that is basically the summary of the whole issue. We're dealing with it with a, with a, a ridiculous issue. Now, that's not the only thing that's being subject uh, to the government's considerations these days, not just prostitution, but also pornography, which is interesting because the two things have a definite history uh, connected to each other. In fact, the word pornography originally meant a description of prostitutes and their trade but has now come to mean writings and pictures intended to arouse sexual desire and the production of such writings, etc. In fact, as we discussed on the show before, there was even a pornocracy from the Greek porn, prostitute and Creighton to rule. When gov- you know, government by prostitutes, believe it or not, uh, dominion, sway or influence of profligate women, specifically the government in Ro- of Rome in the early part of the 10th century. But that is history, and this is today. We're going to be taking look, taking a look at the pros- or sorry, at the pornography issue when we return after our break. Mrs. Thaler, please try to calm down. Sorry, was anything taken? No. How can you say that? Because they didn't take anything. Why do you minimize everything? Uh, I'm confused. You're saying there was a break-in, but nothing was stolen? Watch this. Okay, that's enough. Please turn that off. We, uh, rented it earlier. It's called Brown Baggin' at 7. You rented it. I, I don't watch that kind of thing. Maybe if you gave it a chance... Uh, again, I'm confused, and not just because I didn't see um, bagging it one through six. Keep watching. Mrs. Thaler, we're not going to stand here and watch porn with you. And making a false 911 call is a misdemeanor. We didn't make a false 911 call. That's our apartment. Those animals broke into our home and made a porn movie. Boys, we got a job for you. Really busy right now. Yeah, I mean, just couldn't find a worse time. Fine. I'll just watch all this porn by myself. All right. 
You got our attention. The guy in the bag breaks into people's apartments and films himself having sex. Hey, didn't Sweaty Mike do something like this? No, he killed people. Oh, yeah. It's not funny. This is a violation of marital bed. Zebediah, it's porn, you know? Without the violation, it's just a really boring documentary about pizza boys and housewives. Well, we talked to the distributor, and he says the bag man mails the tapes in anonymously. Royalty checks go to a P.O. box. Allison and I are going to go sit on the box. We need you guys to watch the DVDs, see if we can ID any other apartments. Maybe we can find some forensic evidence and ID this guy. Forensic? What kind of forensic evidence? What, you think I can't say it out loud? You think I'm shy? I, I want him to say it. Ooh, nice. I can say it. Okay, go ahead. Semen. I thought it'd be funnier, but uh, it's just, I feel dirty. I need, like, a brain wipe. Okay, are you guys gonna help us or what? All right, look, just to be clear, you're asking us to spend all day and night watching porn. You think you can handle that? I think I speak for Leo when I tell you that we've been preparing for this moment since the day we were 13. Even watching porn begins to feel like work. Hmm, I've never been much of a porn guy myself. Yeah, right. Oh. Pause it right there. Is that the Williamsburg Bridge? Mm-hmm. Good catch. What's that, like three stories up, looking east? Yeah, it's three, two to Lansing. Loft, second floor. <laughs> How many is that? It's four. We are on a roll. Ready for the next one? I'm starting to feel a little nauseous. I think maybe we should start doing this in shifts or something. What? Come on, I don't want to watch porn without you. That is really maybe the gayest thing you've ever said to me. And a long list of many gay things you've said to me. Was that gay? First thing I do when I date a guy is I look for his stash. You can tell a lot about a man by the dirty movies he enjoys. Okay, this conversation is inappropriate on so many levels. I'm gonna go do some work. Come on, Cole. I think it's safe to say that if we never watch a man with a bag on his head have sex with two women with plastic boobs, it'll be too soon. Did you get any addresses? Yeah, six. Should we split them up? Interview the owners? Sounds good. Be careful, though. People get a little crazy when they find out their house was used as a porn set. And that was from the television show, the short-lived television show, unfortunately, called The Unusuals. And that was one of the very unusual kind of cases you would find on that show. Planning to do another review of that show again in the future. I got a chance to watch the whole series while I was convalescing a little while ago. We're talking about Canada's anti-prostitution laws and as well as their attempt to make other issues illegal as well, or to control them more. Conservative MP Joy Smith made headlines last summer when she voiced support for British PM David Cameron's controversial porn filter, writes Matthew Little of the Epoch Times staff in his column of November 21st of last year. Smith wants a system like that of the UK where Canadian internet subscribers would have to <clears throat> actively disable the filter to view pornography and only the credit card holder on the account would be able to do so. Smith is also advocating an approach to prostitution that targets the men who buy sex rather than the women who sell it. 
with Canada's prostitution laws in legal limbo after they were struck down by Ontario's highest court, she might have had additional leverage in caucus to raise the porn issue. The article reports. The same article also reports that Smith heard from anti-porn activists at Parliament Hill, among whom were Cassandra Diamond with the Women's Support Network of York Region, who testified that pornography was used to groom her for sexual abuse, and professor, author, and anti-porn activist Gail Dines, who argued that, quote, by not doing anything about porn online, what we're saying is that it's okay for a group of predatory capitalists in the porn industry to be the major form of sex educators. That is the reality. Dine cited studies showing that the earlier boys view the hardcore pornography that predominates the internet, the more likely they will seek out prostitutes. She said normal sexual relationships are too boring compared to the pornography, so they seek out prostitutes to play out those scenarios. Dine said porn sites get more visits each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Over a third of the internet is pornography, she says. The younger boys are exposed, or the the younger boys are the younger that boys are exposed, the greater the impact. Many end up addicted to pornography, Dine said. Free porn is the equivalent of me standing outside a high school handing out free cigarettes and alcohol. This would not be allowed. So why is the porn industry the one industry that should not be regulated, asked Dines. And so on and so on and so on. Funny thing is, the last porn regulation I heard about in Canada that referred to porn was a ruling by the CRTC that Canadian porn cable channels had to boost their Canadian content. And in fact, there's an article here from the National Post of uh, June 23rd, Canada's Other Sex Trade. And subheading, while the federal government works to keep prostitution illegal, the CRTC is demanding more Canadian-made pornography, which is kind of a contradiction, to say the least. But that's the way government is. One hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing, and they often go in totally different directions. And apparently anti-porn activist Gail Dines is saying that, quote, predatory capitalists, end quote, are behind the, quote, free porn, which leaves the money factor out of the equation. And maybe, you know, so why are they capitalistic if they're not making money at it and the porn is free? That might explain why she made the strange accusation that the predatory capitalists in the porn industry are really being guilty of being sex educators but not of making money. This doesn't make sense, but I guess you make it up as you go along when when your objective doesn't match what's going on out there. Then there was another issue that just went through our town and through the country in the past, basically mostly in the month of May. And the, the topic would, that was being promoted was the pornification of our culture. And that was a topic on Andrew Lawton's show back on May 30th when he interviewed Jonathan Van Maren, and he, who made the rounds, heard him on a number of shows and saw a number of articles regarding his campaign. Communication director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform and a writer and columnist. He's also a pro-life speaker and was a guest on his show that day. And citing statistics of how many boys, girls, men and women watch porn online regularly, he said, quote, any pornography is harmful simply due to the fact that repeated use acts very similar to crack cocaine, psychologists are telling us. 
It's literally creating new neural pathways that didn't exist before, and you're rewiring your brain, he says. People say that quitting pornography is as difficult as quitting hard drugs because all these neural pathways in your brain that didn't exist before are there. He says his second point is that pornography is increasingly becoming very, very violent. Because since pornography functions as a drug, people don't stick with the bathing suit pictures in Playboy for very long. They keep on escalating to newer and more depraved types of pornography. There was an analysis done about 18 months ago, he says, where 304 of the most popular sex scenes in porn movies... 88% of those scenes contained real brutal physical aggression and 49% included verbal aggression. Experts are saying that because of the type of porn, more and more young men are starting to see violence towards women as something not only acceptable, but something that women actually like. It's the so-called rape myth. Porn is now aimed at both men and women, and the stats show that 19% of women regularly view porn, but women only like it because the guys tell them to like it. Porn, see again, women, they have no will of their own. It's it's amazing. Women just don't exist. They can't choose for themselves. Everything they do, they're doing because somebody else tells them to do it. And now the government's telling them what to do. And And he says, porn culture is now fused itself into the music industry so that girls now think that there's this porn standard that they have to live up to. The explicit pictures being sent online are actually from girls to guys because they think that since guys are looking at porn so much, this is what they have to do to retain male attention, he says. At this time, um, Andrew raised the issue of access again. And he says he doesn't believe that the behaviors are any different than they were 20 years ago or earlier, but access is different. It used to be if you wanted to look at porn, you had to get your hands on a magazine, he said. Now anyone who owns a smartphone or an iPhone has instant, unfettered access to anything. And it's also about privacy, responded Van Maren. Before, you had to go to a store and tell the guy over the counter very quietly which wrapped-up magazine he wanted and then sneak off somewhere to look at it with nobody around. But these days, you can go on the internet, you can check for porn on your phone or on your laptop, and no one will ever know what you're looking at or how long you were looking at it. And you can delete your internet history. And the porn industry is very predatory, and they're doing massive focus on mobile phones because they know that if they want to get the teen audience on early and get them hooked, they have to get these kids where their parents aren't. Education and legislation have to go hand in hand, he says. Like other debates that were once considered religious, now science is revealing that there's sort of an errant truth behind this. There's articles about the negative impact of porn everywhere. Joy Smith, the MP in Canada, wants to do something about it. The Tories in Britain have talked about taking legislative moves against porn. The thing is that the pornography addiction is so powerful, it has to be treated to a degree like cigarette smoking, but more dangerous, he says. Well, if that's what he's thinking, there's just no evidence, I think, to support any of that as a generalization. You'll always find individuals addicted to any kind of behavior, which has also been a topic of one of our past shows on this. In the commentary... The Real Life of a Sex Worker by sex worker Celine Bizet that appeared in the National Post on April 28th. She wrote, quote, I have been working in the sex industry for nine years. The vast majority of my clients have been good people who never caused me any harm, but I have had a few bad experiences. I've had encounters where clients 
performed sexual acts on me after I pushed them away and said no. I've had clients avail themselves of my services and then not pay afterwards. I estimate that I've had thousands of clients and that out of that many, I've been assaulted or exploited in these ways by six of them. I never reported these experiences to the police. At the time of every single incident, I was breaking at least one of the prostitution laws. These experiences don't haunt me, and I don't feel I'm damaged as a person. I do get angry, though. Here's the thing. It's not the sex part of my job that hurts me. It's not the buying or selling of sexual services that causes me any harm. What hurts me is the violence and the exploitation, and those problems are not inherent in commercial sex transactions. We already have laws against rape and assault in this country. I don't need a law against the purchase of sex to help me. What I need is to feel like the same laws that protect everyone else also protect me. And that's what I thought. That's where I thought the legislation was going, but no. Criminalizing the purchase of sex frames all clients as abusers, she says, when the reality is that they are not. Characterizing all of my clients as people who have exploited me completely discounts all of my experiences of actually being sexually assaulted at work. When anti-prostitution crusaders, like Member of Parliament Joy Smith, argue that buying sex is inherently harmful, they're effectively denying me the chance to give voice to which experiences hurt me and which ones did not. Ignoring the realities of people who have actual experience working in the sex trade in favor of adopting a position rooted in ideology and based on widely discredited research is grossly dehumanizing, she concludes. And speaking of the clients, in the May 22nd, 2013, that's last year, uh, London Metro, the headline of Jessica Smith's article read, Desperately Seeking Johns, Canadian Researcher. University of Victoria researchers Chris Atkinson is piloting a project where he would like to enlist sex buyers in the fight against human trafficking. Apparently, it came out in the Ottawa teenaged prostitution ring trial that was going on at the time that it was adult clients who, quote, offered some help to teenage victims when they found out that they were being pimped out against their will, end quote. Atchkinson says Johns aren't without moral lines. He said assuming all sex buyers enjoy paying for sex from a trafficked person who's suffering abuse would mean all Johns are sociopathic. It's those kinds of assumptions that deter Johns from reaching out to police to help a trafficked person, he said. And isn't that so true? That gives you a you know, some idea of how these laws cause more harm than good because then the good people can't do what's necessary about the bad people. They all get treated in the same way, good and bad equal. But here is the thing that, what I, that I find most amazing, and I guess it's a word you just never hear said in the whole con conversation. In all the talk about pornography and its effects on various people who view it, the one word you'll never hear mentioned is the only word that really counts. I mean, why, do we, why is pornography created? It's all about masturbation. And masturbation is at the key of it. You never hear that word discussed in all of these issues. It can't be masturbation that, that, or self-gratification, if you want to call it that, that could possibly be motivating people in all of this. 
And although pornography can be seen from many perspectives, and that's from art to an addictive drug, I guess, it is, above all, an aid for sex and an aid for masturbation because it causes sexual arousal in those who find it useful or attractive for that purpose. It is erotica. It's not plotica. (laughs) Everybody's got some kind of hidden intention, like there's some big life story behind these, and we're all, you know, we're going to change our whole lifestyle and everything because we might be exposed to this. So many of the opponents of porn view it as a a sex educational tool that conveys values of some non-sexual sort. So there I've said it. The emperors wear no clothes, especially when they're verbally masturbating about pornography in Parliament. And, you know, unlike prostitution, which is about sex as a service, pornography is not about sex from the consumer point of view. It's about sexual fantasy and imagination, not sex itself. No different from watching any TV show except for the subject matter. And addictions are about behaviors and not about substances or about objects or visions or visual things or anything that is not a behavior in which the addicted person themselves engages in without the intervention of others, except as an outlet to the addiction. Video games and even board games like chess are addictive to addicts. That was a major theme of one of our previous broadcasts on this subject, and we will continue this discussion on the other side of this break. I'm jealous of kids today. It's so much easier to masturbate than it used to be. Like when I was a kid, you had to go find the Sears catalog, (laughs) go to the lingerie section. Now the internet, I just go to my computer, go online, go right to (laughs) Sears.com. mother caught me. Caught you? Doing what? You know. I was alone. You mean? Uh She caught you? Where? I stopped by the house to drop the car off and I went inside for a few minutes. Nobody was there. They're supposed to be working. My mother had a glamour magazine. I started leaving Glamour. <laughs> so one thing led to another. So what did she do? First she screams, George, what are you doing? My God! <laughs> then it looked like she was going to faint. She started clutching the wall, trying to hang on to it. Man. I didn't know whether to try and keep her from falling or zip up. What did you do? I zipped up. So she got it? Yeah. Well, I couldn't run over there the way I was. No, I I wouldn't think so. So she fell, and then she started screaming, my back, my back. So I picked her up, I took her to the hospital. How is she? She's in traction. (laughs) Sorry. It's not funny, Elaine. I know, I'm sorry. Her back went out. She's got to be there for a couple of days. All she said on the way over in the car was, why, George, why? I said, because it's there. (laughs) Glamour? (laughs) All right, I'll tell you this, though. I am never doing 
that again. What? You mean in your mother's house or all together? All together. No, like, oh, oh, give me yeah. a break. Right. <laughs> you don't think I can? No chance. <laughs> you think you could? Well, I know I could hold out longer than you. Care to make it interesting? Sure, how much? Hundred dollars? You're on. Wait a second, wait a second. Count me in on this. You? Yeah. You'll be out before we get the check. I want to be in on this too. Oh, no, no. no, no. no, no. Oh, all that oranges. It's a different Why? thing because you're a woman. God. So what? It's easier for a woman not to do it than a man. Oh. We have to do it. It's part of our lifestyle. It's like uh, shaving. Oh, that is such baloney. I shave my legs. Not every day. <laughs> All right, look, you want to be in? Yeah. You got to give us odds. At least two to one. You got to put up $200. No, a thousand. Now, I'll, I'll put up 150 All right, you're in for 150 Okay, 150 All right, now. How are we gonna monitor this thing? Well, obviously, we all know each other very well. I'm sure we'll all feel comfortable within the confines of the honor system. And that, of course, was from one of the more famous episodes of Seinfeld, The Contest. And, of course, they never mentioned the word in that show as well. Uh, just in concluding this whole thing, you know, I find that at the heart of the conservative philosophy that's pursuing this legislation... There's an attitude that if they can't control or regulate it, then it must be prohibited. And that's been their attitude on everything from pot to prostitution. And there's also that unspoken but assumed moral component that, uh, you know, anti-sex and anti-commerce. Doing things for money is immoral, especially when it's sex. And then there's a contradictory that having sex without enjoying it and really being into it is, and not being into it is wrong, which applies to women when they're prostituting. But so is just having sex for pleasure, but that applies to the men in this equation. And, you know, that was always axiomatic in the porn industry because there was an old saying that, you know, women were lucky because they only had to act, whereas the men, they had to perform. <laughs> uh, but it's a simple fact of nature namely the differences between men and women that I think that has led to most of the social controversy about sex and the sex trade. The assumed physical imbalance of power between the sexes is what all of the fuss is really about at its root. That's the only thing I can think of that can explain, you know, everyone, by everyone I mean the law and the activists, but not real people doing real things, but everyone's complete indifference to the gay and the lesbian sex trade because each side in the transaction is of the same sex, if not necessarily gender. And as far as bisexual folks go, well, we just don't talk about them because these folks can fit into either category. If a bisexual is a male, for example, and is with a woman, then I suppose the controversy applies. If the bisexual male is with another man, then there's no controversy. In fact, there are government-sponsored parades celebrating this kind of relationship in, every year in Canada's ma major cities, coming up soon now in this city. Although that can be a controversy of an entirely different sort. And finally, one last comment I wanted to make in closing on this issue, just for today, is 
the the heading that I saw in the National Post's Letters of the Day column on December 24th, the day before Christmas, laws are not intended to enforce morality, read the headline, where letter writer Catherine Nelson of Calgary on the subject of Canada's prostitution laws concludes in her final paragraph, quote, Thank goodness for the pragmatic wisdom of Christy Blatchford and Andrew Coyne, who understand that laws are not intended to enforce morality but only to grant maximum safety to the maximum number, end quote. Well, I don't recall seeing the original commentaries to which she might have been referring, but I hope that this wasn't an accurate assessment of their arguments, because I think it's incorrect. The law is there to enforce morality. The law itself is based on a moral code. And in a free society, that means ensuring that the principle of consent is adhered to in the relationships of its citizens. An organization whose primary purpose is to, quote, grant maximum safety is at best one that provides free personal bodyguards, or at worst, a totalitarian state. Safe from what? From fire, flood, hurricanes? From communism or from capitalism? Safe from coercion and the use of force? I'm for that one. That would cover most of the rest, wouldn't it? But that would require a moral code, too, an objective moral code if it's to work in reality. And that's why I think that this is a focus far removed from the provisions of Bill C-36 and why Bill C-36 should just be tossed. This is not going to solve the prostitution problem, and I don't think anybody really expects it to. It's going to create more problems, which will create more legal hassles, more money from the taxpayers' pockets, and worse conditions for everyone involved. Maybe someone will see the light sometime in the future. We'll certainly try to shine on it again in, in the future. And speaking of being far removed, I think we have to remove ourselves for today as we end our show again for another week. And we'll continue our journey next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hey, look at this, come here. There's a naked woman across the street. Where? Second floor from the top. See the window on the left? Wow, who walks around the house like that? Maybe she's a nudist. You know those nudist colony people? Yeah. Hey. 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 Well, where's my money? Who caved? Not me. Not me. What are you looking at? There's a naked woman across the street. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be the easiest money I've ever made in my life.